everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book By Searching by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International, and we are doing the second part of Chapter 10. Her eyes sparkled with mischievous delight when I said her father's money was unconsecrated. She would have had a good time telling him that. Miserably, I tried to explain without appearing ungrateful, but when she saw that it really touched what was sacred to me, she accepted it quietly for Ruth was a lady born. When her visit ended, I was still a faculty waitress. I had not counted on Ruth's decisiveness. After a week or so, I received a letter from her. I wish it had it by me to quote from now, for nothing reveals her charm as much as her little notes. It simply stated that she had got herself a job teaching physical culture at their local YMCA, and her monthly salary was enough to pay my room and board. Now she wanted to know, was that consecrated enough for me to use, ma'am? Not one cent of her father's money retained it. Now, Lambskin, you know it'd be good for Ruth to have to hold down a job, Doc. Now, don't you? Just think of the good you're doing me by accepting and thus making me an honest worker in the hive of life and not a drone. Please write and tell me you accept. So Ruth had handled me after all. I was never able to handle her, but that is how Lord sent me support for the closing school year of 1925. For Christmas 1925, I was invited to the Harrison home. Dr. and Mrs. Norman B. Harrison were now living in St. Louis, where he was a pastor of a famous old Washington Compton Presbyterian Church. They had a family of six talented children, and with two or three of us guests added, we made a hilarious house party. Members of his congregation invited us out to meals and helped us entertain us. But the most fun were the good times in their own home, where music and youthful antics embellished every day. I arrived back at the Institute in January of 1926, expecting to continue in my luxurious leisure. A letter from Ruth awaited me. She had taken sick, and the doctor forbid her to continue with her physical culture class. Please let Father support you until I get you stronger, she wailed. But I could not consider it. It was not the pattern God had shown me. One of my lodestar verses was Hebrews 8.5. See that thou makes all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. From the mountaintop to the valley in one swing. How often life does that. One moment having all things and at the peak of fun, and the next moment facing a grim poverty and hard work. I had to seek employment now. I had lost the comfortable faculty waitress job, and it was never available for me again. Totally unprepared for this, I had not been careful with my spending, and I had anxiously marshaled out my funds. There was just enough to pay the first month's board, and we paid in advance, with something like 11 or $12 over. I would barely make it. I must go to the employment office immediately and see what jobs they could find me. The nicer jobs would all be gone by this time. More than that, friends had been told that I had been sported all through school, and no one would ever think to send me any extra gifts. But the Lord had not left me. It was another chance to search his powers. He was asking me to be willing for uncongenial work again. As I sat looking at my accounts, I suddenly saw something that made me go cold. In the Christmas rush, I had forgotten to tithe my last income. What should I do? Let the tithe continue to slide for a while? I pondered a while. What came first in life anyway? Oh, Lord, you come first, I whispered and resolvently set aside the tithe. That left me less than $2 for a month's car fare and incidentals. And I still had no job. The Institute Employment Bureau found me two jobs, noon rush hour girl at the same old restaurant and a waitress for evening school supper at the Institute. 
I was now very busy indeed. The long walk to and from the restaurant and a later hour getting to bed from the evening school began to tell on my health. Always then, it was dangerous for me to lose weight, but I knew I was doing so. By February, my friends were beginning to notice I looked haggard and tired. I myself felt I was near the breaking point. Lord, is it your will that I have a breakdown? I prayed in private. One evening, I was called over to the reception room to meet a visitor. Standing there, tall, smiling, and fatherly, was Dr. Harrison. In a city on special speaking engagements, he thought he would just look at me up. His keen eyes searched me as we shook hands. How is it, Isabel? he asked. You look tired. Not working too hard, are you? Perhaps I am, I answered. When I returned here from your place, I found that I must work my way again. The lady who had been supporting me since Marjorie stopped has been sick and cannot do it any more. Well, Isabel, and the keen, kindly eyes again searched my face. Isn't it wonderful that stop isn't in the Lord's vocabulary? He never gets sick. He never forgets our needs. And he is never at the end of his resources. Do you remember when you were at our place at the Christmas that you were invited out to dinner with Marjorie by Miss Bull? Oh, yes. That had been a real treat. Miss Bull was a wealthy lady in Dr. Harrison's congregation. She lived in an exclusive apartment hotel, the kind of place where ordinary mortals scarcely dare to look, much less enter. Because of her love for Marjorie, Miss Bull had included me in the invitation, but she scarcely noticed me beyond the usual courteous care of one's guest. I had not minded. It left me free to enjoy the exquisite appointments of the room and the table and the meal. How much the Lord did give me as having nothing and yet possessing all things. I was beginning to understand what Paul meant, but Dr. Harrison was talking. I saw Miss Bull just before I left. When she heard me say I was to speak at the Institute, she said, By the way, I was thinking the other day that I have never made any gifts directly to a student at the Moody Bible Institute. I feel I'd like to help that little friend of Marjorie's who came to my place for lunch that day. And Isabel, she handed me a check for $200. I intended to give it to you in small gifts, perhaps $10 at a time, but maybe I'd better give it all to you now. $200, just like that, truly at sundry times and in diverse manners. Oh, if you did, I cried, then I could give up one of my jobs and not have to work so hard. I'll get it to you tomorrow, dear, said the dear servant of the Lord who went on his way. So I was able to give up the evening work. The noon rush hour, though disagreeable, paid better for the time used, so I retained it. By this and with other gifts, I managed to pay my way until summer. When I returned for the last term, September through December 1926, I was once more faced with earning my way entirely. The Employment Bureau put me in touch with Mrs. Frances Allison of the Practical Work Department. She gave me a very special assignment for Sundays, one which paid a salary. I was the Sunday pianist for the St. Charles Reformatory for Boys, with the government paying the bill. I gasped at the assignment and argued with Mrs. Harrison. Oh, I can't play the piano well enough to hold down that job. I'm largely self-taught. As always before this assignment has been given to the music major student. Isn't that so? True, Mrs. Ellison answered, but I have heard you play for evening devotions, and I think you can make it. I'll ask one of our instructors to give you some tips on evangelistic piano playing and get permission for you to practice on one of the pianos in the music department. The reason I chose you is that the assignment gives such a wonderful opportunity for personal work, and the lady who's been in charge until now is sick. The friend substituting for her is quite inexperienced in bringing children to decisions. You know the reformatory, don't you? Every kind of boy problem is there, from playing hooky from school to murder. There have been some remarkable conversions, and we don't want to see it slump. 
You're paid to play for the morning and afternoon services, but are allowed to visit the boys who are sick in the infirmary and deal personally with them between services. You get two meals in the bargain, so it would help you financially. With fear and trembling, I accepted, and for four months, every Sunday brought me thrilling experiences. My strength encampeth on weakness is one rendering of Second Corinthians 12.9. The substitute leader who taught the Sunday school lesson in the morning service was very conscious of her inexperience, and the pianist trembled lest she be called on to give a piano solo, which sometimes happened. Truly, I was weak. Therefore, the Lord alone was exalted when scores of those boys decided for Christ. I could fill a chapter with all that took place at St. Charles Reformatory, but this is a chapter on finances, so I must continue with that theme. Of course, the salary for the piano playing was only a mite. I had to take a major job besides that. The employment office found me another job as a waitress since those hours fitted my schedule best. But it was at a selected tea room near Michigan Boulevard. Noon and evening I was to serve, and the salary promised was good. It was situated in a private house, and the clientele were mostly high-salaried clerks and office workers from the wealthy district around. Undoubtedly, I would get good tips in addition to the good salary. The widowed proprietor, Mrs. Mack, had been investigated. The moral atmosphere of place approved, and it was all trustworthy. Now, at last, I ought to have plenty of money. This was a good thing for the last term of school. Always brings extra expenses. I liked it very much. Mrs. Mack was a middle-aged southern lady, gracious and warm-hearted. The tea room was pretty, the food delicious, and the clientele very nice to me. My tips grew, and I was congratulating myself when a cloud appeared. At the end of the first month, I walked in one morning to hear shouts and high words. The cook was swearing at Mrs. Mack, who was at the telephone. Isabel, stay here in this room, commanded Mrs. Mack, all flushed up. This woman is threatening my life. I've called the police, and I do not dare to be left alone with her until they come and put her out. No need for the police if you give me my salary, shouted the excited, irate cook. This is no place for you to be in, Miss Isabel. She pays nobody. I've worked here for two months and have been paid hardly anything. She owes the butcher, the baker, the... Shut up, cried Mrs. Mack. You lie. And they were at it again when a tall policeman arrived at the door and the cook had to leave. My heart sank. That wonderful salary. Would I really get it? It was the end of the month and payday. Just what was the situation anyhow? Within a half an hour, a new cook arrived, and the business of the day rushed on. But as I went from table to table, my mind was busy on this problem. Should I ask Mrs. Mack for my salary, or should I just pray that God will move her to give it to me? By the end of the day, I had made a decision. I would speak if she did not offer to settle accounts. She made no offer, nor did she give any hint that she remembered my salary was due. Mrs. Mack, I said as I put on my hat and coat, Tomorrow's the first of the month, and I must pay my board and room bill at the Institute. Do you think you could let me have my salary tonight? She hesitated, and then went slowly over to the till. I had an unexpectedly big bill to pay today, she said. Could you take half of your salary now, and I'll pay you the rest later? This is what I had feared. The dismissed cook had told the truth. Mrs. Mack was not in the habit of paying her bills. Her promises were wonderful, but it was quite a different thing to get her to keep them. Again, I was in a predicament. If I reported this to the Institute, they would recall me, of course. But at this late date, what other job would be available? Here at last I received something from tips. In fact, my tips for the first month, combined with what she had given me, almost equaled the sum of my promised salary. This gave me an idea. Mrs. Mack, I said earnestly, I am a Christian and accustomed to asking God directly for what I need. I cannot serve you for nothing, but I am willing to keep track of my tips. 
And at the end of each week, if you will make up what is lacking to the amount you promised to pay, I will be content with that. Then we'll ask the Lord to move the clients to tip me as much as is needed. She flushed a little. But that's not right, Isabel, she said. The tips should be yours as extra. But I am content and can make ends meet if I get what you originally promised me, I replied. It is very good of you, she said sadly, and then opened up and told me her troubles. She was utterly undisciplined, having no conscience about debt, and spent freely what came into the till. Each Saturday, I faithfully reported my tips, which continued to be high. Better able to part with a small sum than a large one, Mrs. Mack gave me her portion. I believe now that I was the only worker she hired who got paid regularly. Of course, I talked to her about trusting the Lord for salvation. She liked to listen and often agreed with me. But as far as I could see, the miracle of new birth within her never took place. I fear the habit of dishonest thinking had become her refuge from conscience. The new cook lasted only six to eight weeks, and then there was a scene similar to the first one. She would pay a little of her big butcher's bill and grocery bills, just enough to keep the stores from suing her. But, of course, that way of doing business could not go on forever. On December morning, I walked in to find the tea room empty, nothing cooking in the kitchen and nothing prepared for the lunch hour clientele. I called Mrs. Mack, but there was no answer. The upper stories of this beautiful old home had been let out to rumors. One of them, hearing me, came downstairs dressed for departure. There has been a big blowout here, she said in a low voice. I, I didn't get it all, but I think the old lady had gone bankrupt. The cook made a fury about salary not paid, and Mrs. Mack said she wished she were dead. Do you think she can have hanged herself in the cellar? Better go down and have a look. I'm going to my office. Goodbye. I was left alone in the empty room. A nerve-wracking experience followed. All was silent as the grave, and my imagination conjured up an image of going down in the cellar and bumping into her dead body, dangling from the rafters. I shook all over and couldn't get up enough courage to open that cellar door. I prayed for the courage to go down and look, but did not receive it. I despised myself and lectured myself and asked the Lord how I would ever go to China if it did not have the nerve enough to open a cellar door and go down to investigate. But I was petrified. I just could not do it. After about an hour, I heard a step on the veranda and ran forward to see another live human being. It was Mrs. Mack. Oh, Isabel, she said with a heavy sigh. I forgot about you. There won't be any more tea room. I'm bankrupt and the receivers are coming to take over the building. I've lost everything, and I couldn't stand the silence, so I've been out for a walk. Mrs. Mack, I do wish you would give yourself to the Lord, I said, trying again to help her, but nothing seemed to penetrate her mind. She was appreciative, almost affectionate towards me, but in spiritual matters she was vacant. She would not acknowledge she was a sinner, and that is the first steps toward knowing God. So I had to leave her. Again, I was in a predicament, only a few weeks until graduation and no income. I remember only two details of those last days. Mother had left me her silver service, and Father asked to buy it from me for $50. That helped a lot. Then came a day when a bill would do, and I was $5 short. I had been praying about it, but nothing had come in. The morning I had to pay it, I received a letter in which $5 was enclosed. It was a letter from an old Christian lady whom my father had visited. When he told her that I was working my way through Moody, she decided to send me that gift. She had not given me anything before, and she never gave me anything afterwards. But on the morning of my lack, her $5 arrived. At sundry times in diverse manners, always the good hand of my God was upon me. He had wrought wonderfully for Hudson Taylor, but as I look back over my two years and four months at the Moody Bible Institute, 
I felt he had done just as wonderful things for this little unknown Bible student. By searching, I found God able and faithful to supply my financial needs, and he will do this for any of his children who trust and obey him. Next time we'll read Chapter 11, Graduation and CIM Candidature. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now. Her eyes sparked with mischievous delight when I said her father's money was unconsecrated. She would have had a good time telling him that. Miserably, I tried to explain without appearing ungrateful. But when she saw that it really touched what was sacred to me, she accepted it quietly. For Ruth was a lady born. When her visit ended, I was still a faculty waitress.